Hi and welcome to No Country for Brown Men. It's a podcast about being British Asian in your 20s who isn't a doctor, lawyer or accountant. Uh, I'm Rohan Banerjee. And I'm Hussein Kizvani. And this is the second season opener. Um, you know, we're actually surprised we've got to the second season, but here we are. Um, we're going to start off by talking about what we did in the uh, in the close season. Uh, we actually attended the British Kebab Awards, which is which should be like a really big honour, right? Yeah. And I bought a suit from Marks and Spencers, which is a pretty big deal for someone like me. <laughs> I bought some shoes as well, uh, which did not survive the rain. Um, and we thought it'd be a good time. It was a really nice hotel just by the river. Yeah, I mean, like it was in the Westminster Plaza or Park Plaza. Yeah, um, very fancy know. hotel. Yeah, really, really swanky venue. And you know, we were promised kebabs, and you know, celebrities were meant to be there. There was in the program. There was a forward from Theresa May. Um, you know, definitely written by her, not one of her team. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was it, it it was packaged as being, you know, it was you know open or wrapped. It was wrapped as being uh, as as being you know this really great event. The reality was quite different, not wasn't bit. it? So I don't really know because I'm still kind of peeved by everything. Um, so I guess I guess the thing was it was it started off well. We had a good table. Yeah, the um, starters were decent. We just had... just, to, just for context, we were on table eight, uh, which is right at the front. Right at the front, and the new statesmen were on uh, table fifty-two. And so all the media lot. Were yeah, like yeah, the media guys back. were like in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, <laughs> so we were we were prime, right? And you know we had great starters. The music was nice to begin with, but I feel it was a combination of the music being too loud. There were too many advertisements, yeah. and they didn't. Uh, you know, we had starters, but that's all we had. That was for the main like five thing. Five hours. Yeah. So we came to the event at like five p.m. We didn't actually get any food, proper food, until ten, and we had to leave by ten thirty. Because you know we don't live in Westminster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like you know, just like normal people <laughs> who don't live next to the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. But it was just. It was just a Mickey Mouse operation, you know. And also, like so many, like, all of our favourite kebab shops were robbed or not represented. Yeah. Uh, and worst of all, we lost our recorder. We did. We did. It was there one moment, and it was gone the next. And we had a bunch of really good interviews as well with, you know, people who we didn't even expect to be there, like my long lost cousin Raheem Kassam, <laughs> um, and Pretty Patel, who definitely is Donna Kebab. Um, <laughs> But yeah, uh, so, you know, all in all, uh, you know, I know we were live tweeting the event, um, you know, oh, there was free beer, I'll give them that, there was free beer. Uh, <laughs> Which was great for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we were live tweeting the event, but really, really did fall short of uh, expectations. And the worst thing, the worst possible thing, were the gift bags at the end. <laughs> because, you know, you'd expect, like, maybe some nice, like, artwork, some prints, but what you got instead in these gift bags was like a big thing of mint and garlic sauce. <laughs> like this huge pot. Which what would you do with it? What you know <laughs> don't eat kebabs every day. We don't run kebabs. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, that that was an underwhelming experience. Uh, we are thankful that you invited us British Kebab Awards people. Um, maybe not next time. <laughs> Yeah.
welcome to series two of No Country for Brown Men. Uh, we're joined today uh, in our founding studio by Britain's best British Asian comedian from Croydon, Nish Kumar. That's the one. Welcome to the show, Nish. Pleasure to have you. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've uh, you've just listened to Hussein and myself. Uh, share our bad experiences about the British <laughs> Kebab Awards and uh, we were just wondering if you had any strong opinions about kebabs. A lot of strong opinions about kebabs. I used kebabs. to live uh, across the road from... Uh, what? Uh, so was Kebab Kid did not win anything, right? Kebab no, Kid and Master Tree. Unbelievable. <laughs> the kebab is just unbelievable. It is just ridiculous. They don't do Donner Kebabs and they have a, like, a big policy statement about how this isn't like... You know, the usual sort of whatever it's like, three slices of horse meat on some chips or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, they've got a very strict policy. It's shawarma, it's delicious, yeah. the hummus is great. It, it's, it's serious stuff. Okay. It's really, it's really great stuff. What makes a good kebab? It's got to be the way that the meat is prepared. Yeah. Like, you got, it's got to be like, I've seen the whole, the alpha and the omega of the kebab making process in Kebab Kit, because I've been in there so often <laughs> that I've seen them when they have to change the meat. So it's like, it's marinated hunks of chicken and lamb. Like, it's not, you know, like, it's not the sort of weird, like, runoff and hoof and stuff. It's like actual. Like, like proper, like, it's like a real menagerie. Yeah, like, it's a know. real, and it's marinated and stuff, and it sits there and cooks for ages. Quite hypnotic. You can get lost in it, but it is really great. I mean, the only downside is I lived across the road from it, and I went in there so often that they just recognise me. It becomes that point where you become a regular. Yeah. Well, also and, the thing is, yeah. I haven't, I haven't lived there for a while. Right. But my friend still live. My my flatmate still lives in that flat. So whenever yeah. I go to see him, which is you know reasonably often yeah occasionally i'll pop in there and they're still like i'm like norm in cheers yeah. in that kebab shop like it's ridiculous <laughs> it's really dispiriting i mean like like we said like sane and i were thoroughly unimpressed with uh, the british kebab boards same list um you know just ter- like the fact that we didn't eat a kebab is probably but the, that's the insane worst. what were you eating uh couscous uh, what like bread bread like and, oh my god it, it, it was just it was just so the, the so badly nice. organized yeah it was just, I don't know, it was just very strange. And, like, I, I feel it was one of those things when, when the Kebab Award is advertised, all of, like, the media people are like, wow, this is so great. And I, f- I feel it's because, like, they go because they think it's edgy and cool to, like, go to, you know, event that right, kind right, of... Well, in, the, in the brochure, they had an op-ed from Theresa May, which was... What? Which was definitely written by Theresa May. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you yeah, know, yeah, Jeremy yeah, Corbyn yeah, yeah. went last year yeah. and he was just like, the best thing about kebab shops are the salads. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come on, mate. Yeah, I'm not joking, because he's vegetarian, right? So he's just like, kebab shops have... I mean, yeah, of course. Just, just like, oh I mean, God. do you think that, like, if people had read that comment from Jeremy Corbyn last year, that was probably going to be like a, a sign of things to come for his Labour leader. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel that's the point where, like, you know, when future people write his biography, are you saying be like, that Corbyn jumped the shark at the salad? He at did. The yeah, that's that's the point. That was what what do you call it? So there um, you go. That, yeah. We've just we've just yeah, that, yeah. we've just we've just uh, you know we've just done. Um, we should have known every every yeah <laughs> every right wing ranks job for them by just uh, saying the demise of Labour started with the British Kebab Awards last year. It's a good take. It's a good take. You know, um, but I, I was quite disappointed. 
point is, so I, I live in uh, Plaston near Stratford, and uh, there's a kebab shop there called Best Kebab. Yeah. Well, you know, why would they lie? Uh, and they, <laughs> not up for anything. Not up for anything. And they, uh, yeah, they, they didn't get nominated for anything. Ouch. Um, you know, I, I think that was just a real blow to their uh, to their PR. <laughs> um, you know, anyway, in, enough about kebabs, because I'm, I'm putting on weight just talking about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, let, let, let's start with start with the interview. Um, Tanish, how did you get started in comedy? Um, was uh, doing comedy at university. Mm. I started. Uh, I was at Durham. As was one I. Of your, one of your. Is it? That's not your album. Your album art is where you've done your undergrad. I think, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, in true Asian fashion, I've been to more than one university. <laughs> um, I, 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 I have two degrees uh, and um, a fairly junior level job. What were uh, your yeah. What were your degrees in? Uh, my undergraduate's in politics, right. and then a master's in international relations. Yeah, right. That's so you know, I, I was I was more than qualified to vote Remain. In the, uh, <laughs> What's your degree in? I did a degree in history at York. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. All oh, right. Well, I, so I did English and history at Durham. Right. But what I really did, I did that in my first year. What I really did was comedy. Uh, yeah. Because there was a sketch group, the Durham Review, which I joined in my second year. Yeah. And we would uh, write a show a term. And then take the best of those three shows up to the Edinburgh Festival. So I did that mm. in two thousand six and seven, mm. um, and uh, I at some point in two thousand, my final year of uni, I started doing bits of stand up, and that was where I kind of. Did you kind of come from a comedy background, or like, what's your kind of history been with comedy? Because it just seems like one of those. Like we had Ramesh Rung and Ethan on the show. My arch uh, your arch, your arch, your arch nemesis, who who called our who called our lovely studio like a police holding cell. Uh, <laughs> I saw his mum the other day. Oh, I got really? quite starstruck. Do you still call his mum auntie? Well, that's why I didn't go over because I was like, I'm. A, we were at comic relief, and I was like, I'm gonna go over and call her auntie in comic relief. That's why you go and do it. That's why yeah. you go and do it. I know. Um, I know. But I got because I love yeah. Asian provocateur. And so I got. I was like, oh my god, there she yeah. She's like become the star of the show, hasn't she? Like when 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 he came on to our show, my mum was my mum was, was like, is his mum coming? <laughs> I was like, no, no, she's not. I say, like, oh okay, and then she just like carried on. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, like, so you know, what do you know? Did your family take you to comedy shows? Did they? Uh, I we I we used to watch a lot of comedy. I mean, like, right. well, I think people like I think Ramesh and me are all the you know sort of offspring of goodness gracious me to some yeah, extent which which is a show that we've kind of like perennially plunked yeah we're just stuck in the, in the late 90s on this show well it was like that was a real seminal moment for i, I guess your age oh yeah because you're similar age to my brother but like yeah it, I, it was a real seminal moment because I, I mean i was like 11 or 12 yeah and like a huge simpsons fan and yeah. you yeah. know red dwarf and all of those shows that were on at the time mm. and then suddenly you go goodness Goodness gracious me starts and you kind of go oh right so well, interesting that um, you listen, I'm, a, I'm a massive Red Dwarf fan yeah, as well yeah. um, but you know it's worth noting that Red Dwarf had two prominent um, BME characters uh, mm. in Lister and the Cat um, yeah of course know, that, yeah, yeah. And, and that was and what I liked about that uh, was that they were two prominent BME characters but at no point was their race ever mentioned oh yeah no it was not you know, yeah, um, it was just I mean relevant. not least because uh, you know Dave Lister who was the uh, last human being alive was BME yeah, you know, which, course, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is which is an omen 
omen, by the way. Yeah, you know, yeah. we will be the last men standing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, thi- the thing about goodness gracious, which is an omen, by the way. Yeah, you know, yeah. we will be the last men standing. Yeah. But the, thi- um, the thing about goodness gracious me was that it was inherently like a, an Asian comedy, right? Yeah. Um, so every time people talk about like the golden age of the you know Asian comedy, like in the nineties and I guess yeah. the early two thousands, when we spoke to Roma, she kind of said that he it was like a different period now for comedy and he didn't necessarily write jokes because he was Asian. Yeah. Like it may pop up every so often. And I feel like it's an interesting part of our show, like how much does identity like drive what we do? And I kind of wonder like how much does like the Asian, like your Asian background, your maybe like religious background kind of play into your comedy? Well, it all informs, you know, everything you do in stand-up. It's, it's experience, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's you're going to draw on what you're... you've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key distinction is people like me and Ramesh don't have to mention it. Yeah. I yeah. think that's the key thing. And that's only because we are we have had those doors kicked open for us by the goodness gracious me, by Sandy Baskin Mirror. It's, it's interesting you say that. I mean actually going back to uh, you know the comment about like uh, so Ramesh had been quite keen to stress that Asian media and Asian comedy shouldn't be seen as a genre in itself. And when we had Himesh Patel yeah. uh, on the show, uh, Himesh said that like if you wanted to achieve greater diversity in media entertainment, like what you need to do is start making colourblind roles, yeah. where you just talk, where you start writing characters and material yeah. without actually specifying who it's for, and then just seeing who you know who who auditions for it and go from there. Yeah, just get the just get the best people to put. Also, like it isn't. You know, if you did a sitcom in the 70s and one of the characters was BME, mm. you'd have to be like, for it to reflect real life, you would have to be like, that dude's BME. <laughs> like, you'd have to, because in real life, if someone who was, wasn't was white walked into a room in the 70s, people were like, that person's not white. Yeah. Regardless of whether they were being positive or negative about it, yeah. it was definitely the, the key thing. Whereas now, you have... You know, you have conversations where some people are white and some people are Indian and some people are black, and like it's especially if you set write something set in London, it's it's you know there's no reason why it shouldn't be colour. Like we kind of touched on it there, but uh, you're you're quite political generally in, sure. in your in your routine. Um, you know, would you say you've carved a niche? For yourself, uh, right? The show is we're, we're cancelling the show. It's done. It's done. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, uh, I mean, sure, surely at the moment politics is just the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, oh God! You, you, you just, you just, you just, you're not going to run out of things to say or joke about now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, fucking hell. It's keeping you in work. It's exactly. Yeah. I Think. If anything, Brexit's probably boosted your career. <laughs> probably, yeah. But people, well, it'll be a nice, like, it'll be in, in every sense an Indian summer before we're all deported. But <laughs> so, it's one of those things where you, it, it's the Brexit thing is really interesting because so I was, you know, it kind of it happened in June. Lots of people were doing material about it in August, and there was this real sense of like defiance, mm. like, and like everyone was like. Yeah, fuck that. Ha ha ha. And now, just over the course, because then I toured uh, through October, November, December, and then, you know, kind of into the new year. And what you slowly found was people just being like, oh, it's really happening. <laughs> was there like, really, the weight of yeah. it was, was like. Was there really like that sense of denial? I don't think it was denial. I think it was a sense of, especially because, you know, going to the Edinburgh Festival, you know, going to an arts festival in Scotland, yeah. you were p- playing to a particular demographic. Yeah. And that demographic was very, like, 
oh fuck you like it was a, it was it wasn't denial it was defiance laughing about brexit was a kind of yeah it was like a, but then this dawning reality yeah. that it is happening and there's no way of stopping it that kind of crushing blow yeah. and then so then the challenge is to kind of keep it funny as the reality of I it mean, starts to say the way, the way I've seen it is you know it's laughter as a coping mechanism to say laughter is the best medicine but you mm. know when you're laughing at Brexit it's like the medicine is fucking cyanide or something yeah 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 I mean yeah I mean it's it's no laughing matter but at the same time if you didn't laugh you'd cry that uh, it, it's that kind of mentality but, so the challenge is to kind of step to keep the audience laughing but constantly acknowledge the gravity of the situation what happens if you've got an audience that's like pro-Brexit Mm. <laughs> Interesting question. Not one I've come across. They probably wouldn't go, they probably wouldn't go to see you. Well, yeah, no, that's true. Why, why would they go and like, see a, an Indian comedian? Yeah. Well, and also, like, I've sort of I've started opening my shows by going, because my mum was very, like, concerned. Not about Edinburgh, because, again, you're dealing with a very specific demographic. And even the people that do come to Edinburgh that may have been leave voters, certainly that are Tory voters, are not the kind of people who get angry when someone presents a different opinion to them. They're not the kind of people that are going to start shouting and chucking things. So in Edinburgh, my mum was like, oh, it'd be fine. But then on tour, she was like, oh, I'm worried about you going to all these towns. But what I, what I found is that, you know, it's, I started saying on stage that there's not, you're not going to get play to a broad section of the population if the only organisation to consistently recommend you are the Guardian newspaper and Stuart Lee. Like, that is a very <laughs> specific demographic. And also what... Um, Stuart Lee wrote an article in The Observer a couple of weeks ago about touring through leave towns and it's like the best gigs of the tour because it's all the Remain people who have come out in that town and they're all, you know, it's like, it's a really odd time to be doing comedy. Do you think that comedians have got political responsibility? No, I, the, the, the job of a comedian is to make an audience laugh. Like, that's your only responsibility, ultimately. Yeah. But I, uh, for me, I, my... I'm, my interest is in politics, hmm. so I'm going to write about things that I'm interested by. There's a second. There's a second part to that that we were trying to segue into just now, <laughs> which is really. I mean, I, I guess it's like something about how people kind of respond to specific types of jokes now. Yeah. So one of the themes of at least our last season was about offense and free speech and sure. like what that all means. Um, you've kind of, I mean, you have you ever kind of dealt with situations where like you might've said a joke and you're conscious that you might've taken it too far or that you kind of want to say something, but you want to, ex- you know, you want to make some type of political expression, but you're also very conscious that it might land the long, you know, the wrong way. So on the one hand, you've got the thing where I guess like every comedian kind of faces, but on the other hand, you're now in this heightened political climate yeah. where, where people are just much yeah. more sensitive generally, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a real powder keg that you're sort of walking into. And I mean, in terms of... Another bomb reference on an Asian show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's a real, it's a real exploding festival. <laughs> it really is. Like, it's one of those things where you just kind of... You have to try and have your own internal barometer for what is too far and where is the line and all that kind of How stuff. do you kind of determine it? Well, you... I try and consider the feelings of people in the audience. Right. And you always try and make sure that if... And then what you try and do is, if something is a transgression, that there's a reason for it and that you can... It's justifiable, you know? And I... There were... You know, there are certain things that I've pushed 
very hard and there are certain but I always feel like I feel like if someone shouts something back at me I can go you know and someone did recently and I kind of went well look I've got to stop the show but I can absolutely defend this so here we go so what there was like two minutes are you allowed to say it or not? yeah yeah I can it was uh, somebody had a had a whole routine about how uh, rich white men are the history has a way of forgiving them for transgressions in a way that it doesn't for other groups because I was I was watching the documentary about slavery and the the two big government bailouts have been for former slave owners and say you know it's basically for a rich white man you can do whatever you want and someone will sort of bail you out and then this guy was sort of saying what about irish people and i was like well you know what about irish well, people? yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i was like well they, I'm, I'm i've specifically said rich white men like it's loaded yeah with class and i do address the fact that i'm like I genuinely believe it's in a lot of ways the worst thing you could be as a working class white person because everybody hates them. <laughs> because like right wing people think they're benefits ground, just left wing people think they're racist. So it's like the worst, <laughs> like the worst deal in the world. And I specifically, t- and I was saying, well, like because a lot of the, uh, those Irish people were from low income families. Like that's part of, part of the Irish problem they is see economic. As, they see it as white, right but they just heard that as an attack. And you also yeah. go, and the thing is that. We, the guy was trying to say, well, you know, there were signs about no Irish in pubs, and I was like, but there, you know, this, there's none of that now. Like, Irish mm-hmm. people can kind of go anywhere yeah. now. There are still places black people can't go. If you think about it, we've, like, we've sort of got over that <laughs> in a way that we don't tend to yeah. if the people committing the trip. So you kind of have to stop the show and just go, look, I've got an explanation for this because so, I think I mean, very how carefully that, about it. How, how, how did that impact on the rest of the audience? Like, did, you know, did... well, the rest of the audience got angry with this bloke because the rest of the audience was, you know, like, we understand the caveats that are built into this. <laughs> you have just... And also, the other thing is, he just didn't help himself because he kept on. You know, he was he was saying no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. But instead of blacks, he kept saying the N word, but just like over and over again. You know, and like I kept being like, and then at one point I was like, can you not say can you not say the N word? And he was like, no. That was the sign, and I was like, I think the signs were no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. He was like, no, that's the politically correct bit. And then he said it again, and I was like, no, yeah, can I also just say, can you just stop saying the And because of that, it's suddenly the whole audience was like, I think you just wanted to say the end. <laughs> like, I think that this is all, it's all this is. Where, where was this show? Soho Theatre. Oh, God, right, so it was in London. It was in multicultural London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Multicultural. But, you know, that... That's the thing with all different, you know, a lot of the time when people take offence by something a comedian has said, it's just because they've heard a single word and then they've reacted, they've reacted in a certain way. So this guy just heard white and he was like, this guy hates white people. So I mean, so I mean, uh, going back to this whole uh, issue about you know comedians causing offence and where the fu- where the line is drawn, mm. um, Ricky Gervais got into some hot water recently. Oh, this is the um, dead baby, the dead, yeah, yeah, the yeah, dead yeah, baby's yeah. joke, exactly. Um, and I was uh, just you know uh, going to link that to your uh, your uh, Radio Four indiscretion about Jacob Rees-Mogg, which I suppose is. <laughs> 
is, is nowhere near as bad. And, yeah, yeah. and to be fair, probably quite accurate. Um, yeah. But the point the point was, I think the reason why there were complaints was because you know it, you'd kind of uh, or the complaints about it would be that you'd crossed over a line. But yeah, chat, yeah. Chat, but um, Radio Four stuck by you. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So that was I, the thing. Is I, I to be completely honest with you, I did not know that had happened. Yeah. Uh, somebody <laughs> tweeted me because that thing that now show was months ago yeah. like it was it was a while ago and I, I I didn't know anything about it somebody tweeted me yesterday about it and said and you know the tweet was a link to an article on Chore which is a sort of comedy website yeah. and um, I was sort of baffled by it because they, no one had mentioned anything to me about it mm-hmm. and um, what I liked is that um, the person who is uh, has addressed the complaint is like my kind of boss at Radio 4 she's great and I really like her and what I like about it is she's had to talk I feel really guilty only about her that she had to talk so seriously to justify me calling Jacob Reese mug and asshole <laughs> and she just ha- and she has to and it's so hard to have a serious conversation that involves the word asshole <laughs> many times and she had to be like we believe the use of the word asshole was satirically valid under the content because you know it was Jacob Reese mug quoted Cicero and said that, that um, it was something like, uh, you know, there's nothing so unwise as experts. And, I, you know, I found a, another quote from Cicero that said that, you know, the wise are instructed by reason. And so then I say, and then another quote from Cicero is, do not listen to Jacob Rees-Mogg, that uh-huh. guy is an arsehole. <laughs> and, I, and so because it, so my defence of that would be, that is, it's a joke couched within the terms of, you know, the joke, the intent of the joke is, look, there's lots of people have said lots of different things about a lot, and a lot of the time they've not been very specific. Mm-hmm. So what you're doing is taking something that Cicero has said and using it to fit your agenda. I think you're an asshole. so now I'm <laughs> going to take something Cicero has said to contradict you, and yeah. then I'm going to double down on this by faking a Cicero quote. And so she, Julie, was able to kind of say, look, we, you know, we think that this was satirically valid. I think it was satirically valid. Ridiculous. Like, <laughs> ridiculous. Like, imagine, like, imagine having to like sit down on your table and be like, okay, we're going to dissect this joke, yeah, which is so obvious. Yeah, and it's um, like, it, I, I, I find it sort of slightly baffling. I mean, he's a member of parliament. I'm pretty sure he's been called worse during PMQs. Like, you yeah. know, like that, if you ever see well, footage Ali G, of that. Ali G, like did a whole segment just like piss taking him, right? Yeah, like I he's, mean, he's used to this stuff, and he sort of yeah, enjoys it. Yeah, and he's that. like, you know, this is a this is a guy who, uh, when he was interviewed for an Andrew Neil polemic ages ago, uh, posh and posher about social mobility, yeah. um, in order to do, in order to defend his being in touch with uh, his <laughs> yeah. constituents. Uh, use the quote "Vox Populi, Vox Day." I'm a, man, I'm a man of the people. I'm a man of God. You know, so you, you, you're literally you're you're saying how in touch you are with the people in, in Latin, Latin. Yeah, you know. Um, Same. You, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I like. I think that he's. You know, I would be happy to say that to his face. Like I, and because I think that, you know, it's not. It's like, and also like, asshole is such a like. It's such a light swear word. Like, if you can say it on Radio 4, it is not that transgressive. And this was at 6.30 on a Friday on Radio 4. Someone was listening to Radio 4 on a yeah, 6.30 on a Friday night and then decided consciously that they were going to complain about that in the BBC. It's um, astonishing. Like, anyway, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Nish, I'm very happy that you received my complaint.
No Country for Brown Men. We are in our studio today with Croydon's best comedian, Nish Kumar. Yes, that is. Are right. you still accepting that? Are you still, well, you're, you're still accepting know. that? Well, I don't know actually. This Ronnie Corbett was from Croydon. Yeah, but he's dead though, isn't it? <laughs> you know what just just before we started the show we were like the show is just too depressing we're going through too many depressing things oh by the way this guy is dead um no he, he, yeah. he, he, he was it was really good but, be, uh, yeah what be. i guess like one of the reasons that we say that you know you're one of the best comedians is because you've got a good social media following and as we know your social media following determines where you are in real life too um, uh and you've got more Twitter followers than me and Rohan combined, and we're just trying and, to get yeah, more Twitter followers than us combined, and the podcast, as well. yeah, and the podcast, <laughs> and, and our four hundred fans as well. I think I've got like I think I've got quite a low amount for someone who's done Mark of the Week more than once. I think that <laughs> yeah. if you look at like other people who've done more, I yeah. think I've got quite I've got quite a poor social media game. Do you um do you kind of like track your followers carefully? Like do you? No. I definitely no. I don't know what the like metrics of anything are. <laughs> like I um I was reading an interview with Frank Ocean and he was like yeah because we can I've got my album sales because he I think he released his last album himself yeah. and he's like yeah I can see where it's sold and I was like Jesus Frank Ocean well, you need to like, terrifying you need to up yeah. your analytics then you know? yeah I know I need to get all over it Frank Ocean's all over you you need to get yourself like you need to go find like the Bangladeshi just, just computer centres yeah. and figure out they can do like all your data yeah. for you yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just, just for, for concert I actually I used to work for the Mail Online um, yeah oh Jesus like, yeah everything was everything was like uh, you know traffic you got everything's about traffic you know yeah, yeah. Key, keywords SEO that's right it. yeah I think I have very low traffic I think I yeah I I don't really I don't really get it's not really a medium for me I think yeah I mean, yeah, I just like put like you know hashtag niche mainly but, that's <laughs> mainly what I do it's mainly hashtag niche it's mainly just like me like retweeting you know uh, blogs and then just like please buy tickets for my I think Twitter. that's um you know probably the, uh, the the second worst hashtag we've had on this show yeah what the, the worst was uh, uh, my attempt to make a point about um, you know millennials being social media obsessed and yeah. I used the hashtag having a good time hashtag having a good time <laughs> we're, 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 so make, we're, make, we're making them into yeah. t-shirts so, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 if, we ever, if we ever do this live show that we've yeah. got planned <laughs> season 2 merch hashtag niche hashtag niche available only in brown I mean I, I did that for um, like I God, I was sort of joking around I was on tour with a bunch of in New Zealand with like a bunch of Kiwi comics who are all my, are now all my friends and we kept on um, I just kept on saying hashtag Mish was the official hashtag of the tour <laughs> and then I, so I think I think maybe even on stage a couple of times I was like guys if you enjoyed the tour hashtag Mish is the official tour hashtag and uh, then at like the awards do at the end of the fest, this New Zealand Comedy Festival uh, like they give out this award called the Billy T Award it's named after Billy T he's like the biggest comedian in New Zealand history and he 
you know, and it's just like, it's a really big thing. And the guy who won it and was handing it out to the next winner was my friend Guy Montgomery, who'd been on the tour. And he, he was like, if you could use the uh, official hashtag, hashtag Nish. And, then, <laughs> like, and you, like, you know, it's like 400, 500 people in this theatre, and all of them are like, what the fuck is Nish? <laughs> and there's like me and That's five of my friends That's how great brands get started. Yeah. Get started. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is it a cool acronym? <laughs> <laughs> I like, you know, we'll, we'll release this podcast. We'll release this podcast at the end of this week. Start hashtagging Nish. Hashtag Nish. Go down to yeah, in like a few about. weeks, and it'll just be all over the <laughs> So I mean, <laughs> so I mean, we we've established uh, that you know you're at Durham and you got involved in comedy there. Um, That's right. Yeah. While, while wearing your red trousers and walking down the hill. Don't you wear oh, gowns? Yeah, don't you wear gowns and show? Really interesting place to go to uni, especially if you've come from, if you haven't come from a. I wouldn't even say like a public. I mean, it's it's a strange way you haven't gone from a public school. But I imagine even if you've been to a public school, if you haven't been to like a boarding school, yeah. it can feel a bit. <laughs> is, it like is it like one of those places where? So obviously Durham has this reputation of being like the Oxford, Cambridge rejects oh, university. But because of that, Just like for, for the record, are you an Oxford reject? Oxford reject? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and because and because Correctly of so as well. Yeah, so. And be, and be, you like because of that, like yeah. the whole like. Oxbridge traditions that they try to imitate end yeah. up like becoming really exaggerated. Is that was that true? Yeah, I mean, I think the traditions and stuff. It's an old university, yeah. so I would say the traditions are just because it is an old university. Yeah. What I think becomes exaggerated is the sort of the college system and stuff, and people are like, "What college did you go to?" Well, my college is, and it was kind of like the colleges are just. It's like dorms. So places you sleep. Yeah, it's places you, you sleep. Because in, in Oxbridge, your teaching comes through the college and stuff. Whereas mm. in Durham, it was like, you know, it wasn't... Yeah. What, what, what I, I think, I think yeah, my experience uh, of Durham was that the collegiate system only really... Uh, it kind of, like, took on took on a big mantle for sport. Yes. Yeah, correct. so yeah, yeah. sport sport was a big thing. Like, um, So I, w- I was in Collingwood, and Collingwood's, like, football culture was quite prominent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, beyond that, I mean, my main my main thing at Durham was that, you know, Palatinate, and Palatinate, the newspaper was, you know, it was across the colleges. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, and like, so, like, you you, t- you tend to get involved in clubs. And yeah, society. I mean, you do make, you do make, I think I think one of the advantages of having those uh, kind of, like, tight-knit college systems is you do make some really good friends within, within your college. Absolutely. You've got yeah. friends on your doorstep. So, uh, so after Durham, yeah. um, you didn't go straight into comedy. You uh, well, c- kind of. Basically, I got out of uni, and there was just a general panic in my whole family about what I was going to do. Like, right. I was pretty sure that I wanted to do comedy. I was a hundred percent sure I wanted to do comedy. There was like a general panic. So then, for like about six months, I did the jo- this job in recruitment, which I was so bad at. <laughs> like, I was so dreadful, and I uh, quit. Uh, before I was pushed, uh, in sort of like I think probably like February two thousand and eight, February two thousand and eight. So I graduated in October or what, July two thousand and seven. Mm. And so for then for like six months I was doing this like this weird job that I was terrible at. And then I quit in October two thousand and eight because I was just like it was like I'd woken up from. You know, like it's like I'd been asleep for six months. I was like, "What the hell am I doing here?" Like, I mean, that's, that's probably anything. what would have got you the sack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think they wish I was asleep. Yeah. Until my conscious efforts actually hindered more than else. So you you done? Have you done anything else aside from the comedy circuit? No, I mean, I'd done a couple of like sort of menial temp jobs in the the like the summers at uni off uni, and then I just went straight in two thousand and eight. I basically just signed up with a bunch of temping agencies. 
and I sort of just worked office jobs for five years, essentially, mm, from wow, 2008 okay. to 2013. I was just working a sort of nine to five, you know, just like various things. I sort of had a weird speciality, which is like public sector temping. So I was doing, you know, stuff in... There's a thing called the... Um, the Central Office of Information, which sounds like this kind of Orwellian nightmare. It used to be based in Lambeth North. I mean, it was one of the first things that went in the first round of cuts. But it was like the government's kind of party planning for the government. Like, so if, an, <laughs> if a department needed to organise an event, the COI would do the event and they would invite all the relevant people and put on the event. And it was like, it was a really, you know, like, and the thing is, it was, it was a really straightforward job because it was mainly just you know writing out filling out excel spreadsheets and doing all of that stuff but i couldn't have done a job that required more from me mentally because you know every evening you were running out to do stand-up and you know sometimes if i'd come i remember once i came back from god i did like once i came back from hereford at like three in the morning and went to work at eight yeah once i came back from the worst one was once i got a i did a cambridge ball which are these like borderline eyes wide shut affairs? Me and my friend did stand up. Me and my friend were opening, doing like half an hour, and then Simon Amstel was doing like an hour and a half at like two in the morning. Yeah. And so we went, and because they, it was one of those things where they weren't paying us, we were like, we're going to get so drunk and eat so much food. And yeah. so we did that, and then we got the first train back, which is at like 5.45 or something. And I went straight to work. <laughs> that, must been, that must have been so. Like, how did your kind of family? Did they know that you were doing comedy? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, how yeah. how were they? How how what were they? Oh, they uh, hated it. Were against it. Yeah. Still, occasionally, my dad's like, oh, "You'd have been a great lawyer." Like, just every so often. <laughs> my dad does that. Yeah. It's yeah, he right. still says that. It's good if you do. If you don't do a science, they're like, yeah. "Well, what else are you going to do?" What a great lawyer you'll be. Yeah. <laughs> And this is one of the, that. you know, as far as origin stories go, like that kind of like uh, Asian appropriation uh, of, of jobs is what one of the things that started this podcast. Yeah. yeah. Our like, strapline is it's a podcast with people who aren't doctors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And occasionally you get people like who email in to say, well, I'm a lawyer. Am I allowed to listen to your yeah. podcast? And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> but but one, of, one of the things, uh, you know, one of the more serious things we've had, one of the more serious theories we've had on the podcast is that the reason why there is this obsession with uh, second generation migrant children especially being pushed into careers like medicine law accountancy is that if their parents themselves have like taken some substantial risk to come to the UK you know whether that be whether that's risk in terms of suffering racist abuse or financial risk or you know they've they've, li- they've left India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or wherever it is and they want their kids to go into these professions which they see as being secure professional yes yeah. you, know, you make yourself a part of the machinery of yeah the exactly and they they worry that when you have like a creative industry that fluctuates like journalism or yeah. comedy or acting or whatever it is they just worry that their kids are going to get like you know caught and and to an extent that's quite a uh, that's quite a nice thought like yeah, yeah. parents looking up the kids it all, it all comes from a good place it's yeah. just that if you are if you have come over and you've done whatever job you can the, the theory is the next generation does something that's indispensable to society. Yeah. yeah. So it's like you, if you, you know, look at all the jobs like doctor, dentist, lawyer, accountant, you know, accountant yeah. like all stuff that a functioning society needs. Nobody needs comedians. 
Like, you know, <laughs> like that's, you know, that's just the reality. But that's why, you know, that's why you're... It's a very Orwell theme going, Orwellian theme going yeah. on. This yeah, episode, exactly. It's an, yeah. But it's like, it's just, if you make, if your kids become part of the machinery of the state, mm. then they won't get kicked out. See, but I think is, that's the thing. This isn't going to help my case of convincing my dad that, like, podcaster is... But you always hit a point. Yeah. You'll all, you'll hit a point where you do something that lands on their desk. So for me, it was Radio 4. Yeah. That was the first thing I did. Because, like, I did Edinburgh shows and stuff, and my parents aren't, you know... They like comedy. You know, yeah. they like... But when they can recognise something. But when they can recognise something. So, like, for them doing an Edinburgh show, they don't, it doesn't really land on... You know, they came and they're supportive and stuff, but they don't really understand it. But Radio 4, like, as soon as you do that, they're like, okay, this is... This is well, it, yeah, becomes, this is it becomes a bragging, bargaining chip. Yeah, I think so, but also, like, the BBC is such a... I mean, every other person in the world, apart from people who live in Britain, think the BBC is amazing. (laughs) Like, every other person in the world is like, oh, my God, so, you know, you have all this stuff that... And it costs, like, that, like, very small amounts of money a year, whatever. So, for, you know... If my you know my grandfather used to listen to the world service in Kerala like in the you know in like the 50s like it's a kite mark and so as soon as I did one of my first Radio 4 things that was like a big thing for me in terms of my parents accepting that it was a viable career mm. tell, tell us about like, your family background because you said so you said in an interview that we definitely haven't gotten written down um, <laughs> how you come how you come from a long line of Hindus and irreligious Marxist agitators and that's a really interesting background yeah, that we correct. don't know a that's lot exactly about because we're reading exactly what you said yeah, yeah. That's exactly <laughs> so, what my, my family is from a state in Kerala, uh, India called Kerala which is uh, has consistently elected Marxist, Marxist representations since India attained independence <laughs> and it's um, you know it's a, uh, it's a I come from a matrilineal, matrilineal system of inheritance yeah. so you inherit everything including your surname from the mother's side and so you know it's it's a very interesting group of people you know like my grandmother's family on my dad's side were all involved in the communist party my uh, uh, is that why you got this kind of like Che Guevara kind of beard yeah that's why yeah yeah, (laughs) that's that's where it that's where it all starts from but like there is this you know there's this sort of valuing of dissent yeah an argument, I think that's the only thing that I can see as a sort of common thread mm. that across like lots of different parts of my family. There is a real value in there's a value in education. So Kerala also operates a kind of ninety six percent literacy rate. I think so. There is this like so. There's a value in education. The most you know valuable thing you can do is get an education. Mm. You know, like my my cousin is a, an objectively wealthy man, but he, you know, he didn't do very well in his A-levels and it still gets brought up. <laughs> 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 He's got, like, two houses. And everyone's like, it's so bad in his A-levels. It's like, who gives a shit? <laughs> like, it's the guy's, like, Richie Rich, like... And it's like, yeah. it's just funny that people just, you know, he's an objectively successful man. My uncle's objectively successful in business, but there is, he's all, there are people who are like, well, he didn't really get very good GCSEs. <laughs> and it's like, and it, it, it's, so there's a value to education. I mean, that, that is a, that is a fairly, uh, it, it, you know, it's, of course it's an Asian idiosyncrasy, this, uh, the academic expectation. Sure. And stuff. 
But I, I think like one of the things that I found throughout my career um, is that you know I grew up with the same kind of um, academic pressures on me. You know, you you're not you're not Asian, you're not Bijan, you're Asian. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you've got to get well, your family of Bengali as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. there is the, there's a there's a cup that's a very similar. Yeah, Brahmin as well. You know, like, oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we're like, top, right? like, it's not like... <laughs> so mine, mine, mine are Gujarati, and it's exactly the same. It's the same. Right, okay. You're you're farming people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this pressure was built up, and you know, you go. I went through school, and always constantly told, you know, you've got to get these good grades and you get and I think as, as we've established like the reason reasoning behind that is then you can get a good job and stable job and yeah, yeah. and then you know be bragged about by your 25 aunties yeah exactly um, yeah. but what I found kind of like disillusioning and disheartening when I got into the working world was that you know, there was this kind of thing that like you could go through your school career and get all these A's and A stars, but ultimately in the Western world, they didn't look at it as grades weren't the be all and end all. And that was quite a harsh reality yeah, to sure. kind of come across where you realise that, yeah, actually, um, you know, having A stars in your English GCSE doesn't actually guarantee you a good job in journalism. But- yeah, I mean, but yeah, and to an extent that's Asian parents getting out of touch, but also that's just where we are economically at the moment, you know, yeah. after 2008, you, the whole job market, the universities entrance, it's all just kind of in flux at the moment. And yeah. uh, especially a profession like, like journalism is such a, in such a precarious and volatile situation. It's like the same with creative industries, John, because I was going to ask about yeah. like, so obviously like we've spoken to comedians before and everyone has their own like different path. Yeah. And obviously like being a good comedian has nothing to do with your education whatsoever. It's no, about no, like, it so you can be a very smart person and not be very funny yeah. like us. Or, <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know, I think you're doing yourself an <laughs> Um, or you know you well, we're can fu- we're funny looking <laughs> yeah yeah pe- you know girl, girls laugh at us yeah. <laughs> so, so we got that going for us. that's how I start <laughs> um, I guess like I wanted to ask just about you kind of coming up and like the because you know so before we were recording you kind of said about when you were doing like mundane jobs it kind of gives you like you know unconsciously gives you time to like work on comedy yeah, material yeah, yeah. and like maybe gives you an encouragement to like yeah um, you, I mean it gave me an incentive to Harder yeah. Um, if there's any kind of like aspiring comedy writers or people who want to be comedians who listen to this show, yeah, or people who are wanting to take a radical career change, possibly working in journalism and want to try something else, like what would you? <laughs> what would you? <laughs> yes, thank you, my career advisor. Mind that um, Ramesh was asked a similar question. Yeah. And his advice to aspiring Asian comedians was, "Don't do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because because he said that he said that if more Asian comedians came up, they'd be literally taking taking the food out of his. He introduced me to his wife as the man who was stealing food from our children. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I met Robin, his wife. Um, I, mean, like, um, I mean, like, what were the things that kind of, you know, what kind of things did you learn kind of coming up as a comedian? What were, like, the lessons that you could get back? comedy, there is... Uh, no substitute for just doing it. You yeah. know, like, in the act, there's acting classes and... You know, there's all sorts of stuff that there's no substitute with comedy other than just to yeah. get out there and do it. And um, it's about having the stomach for the initial rejection. Yeah. And the problem is, when you get rejected from 
you know, an acting part, it's you get told that you've not got something. When you get rejected from comedy, it's because an audience is sat in silence, staring <laughs> at you, rejecting your personality. So that's the you've got to have the stomach for that rejection because everyone goes through it. But also, you've you've just got to do it. That's the one thing people ask me this question often, and my thing is always just do it. Yeah, you have to you have to sort of commit to do it, and I believe that you very quickly find out if it's something that interests you as well. Like, it, 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 And there's also the other thing about comedy is that it, even if you start wanting to be a stand-up, there's no guarantee that that's where it's going to take you. What yeah. you might find is that what you enjoy is the mechanics of joke writing, but you, don't, you can't actually be bothered with the hassle of having your day spoiled by having to do stand-up <laughs> in the evening. But the way a lot of people find that out is by trying stand-up because it's yeah. the quickest way between writing a joke and having that joke delivered. So it's a really good way to get into it. Also, the BBC does run a show called News Jack, which I used to host, yeah. which is a completely open submission show. There is just an email address. That's it. If you have an email, you can submit to News Jack. Like, it's, it's crazy. Mm. And it's also something that, like... We, 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 they want more BME writers. That's yeah. something that we, there's a real like appetite for it within the BBC. And also there's, you know, the talent is definitely out there, but it's about making sure that people are aware of all the opportunities that are available to them. That's why a lot of the time at open mic nights you go and you go, bloody hell, comedy is diverse as shit. Like, it's, <laughs> like, it's fucking amazing. Like, yeah. if you see an open mic night, there's absolutely all varieties of people there. And it's about, and what you're seeing is, you know, the, those. That's the great thing about it. It is a democratic art form because it doesn't matter what your qualifications are. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you can write a joke and you can deliver that joke, you can do it. Um. Yeah. Okay. So let's. Uh. I'm, and I can't believe we're going to do this again because it is literally like every episode bar two. Uh, but you know it's going to happen. Yeah. Um. So Nish, you wrote an essay for the Good Immigrant. Right there, volunteer. Which is which is I mean, again like we've gone on about we're championing diversity, but like the fact is that the Good Immigrant was such an important book because it's one of the only books that addresses um uh, you know the the lack of diversity. Yeah. Yeah. Media. Um. Uh, so I mean, the essay was uh, "Are you a confused Muslim?" Correct. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, it, was, think... it was a, a, about um, somebody made a, used a publicity shot of me and turned it into a meme called "The Confused Muslim." <laughs> so truly, like the most confused. Of yeah. yeah <laughs> very confused. So I so I wrote like I wrote sort of quite funny. So the whole thing comes from Nikesh Shukla, who I'm sure we've has been rhapsodized about variously on this podcast we actually have like a frame yeah exactly today. yeah yeah oh. yeah I think in this like every morning I get like pray to Nikesh <laughs> but he's like of all of the people who is like you know we, we all talk about diversity and how important it is but this guy really put his money where his mouth was and yeah. just got up and, and was like I'm sick of uh, you know and I can't speak to this because it's really not my frame of reference or my world but he was fed up of Publishing. Well, that's, this is that this is one of the you know this is, that was one of the motivations uh, for us starting the podcast was to like just put something out there. But the question I was going to ask about the Good Immigrant was that you know it's quite important to remember that it was although it went on to be extremely successful yeah. last year, rightly so, Guardian Book of the Year twenty sixteen. Um, why do you think it had to be crowdfunded? Why don't you think it was <sighs> well, it was is... it was taken on by a, name, a a mainstream UK publisher? I don't know because I don't know enough about the publishing world to know whether this is something that they just decided against. I 
I, I, I'm not sure. I do know. what I, All I do know is there is always uh, a kind of bemused reaction when uh, BME stories are successful. There is always a slight confusion about it. I keep reading things saying, Get Out has made... I think Get Out has made like nearly two hundred million dollars, yeah. and the, the you know you read articles, trade articles from the film industry in the states, going like, "What the hell is this?" And you're like, "Yeah, you made a good movie." With Black <laughs> 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 like, there, there is a huge audience. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you kind of feel that? So one, you know, maybe everyone has like different opinions on this whenever they come on the show or not about identity politics because it's yeah. like this term about like <clears throat> you know we're going to be using for a very long time yeah um but no one really quite knows what it is and i think there is this argument even among kind of bme creatives yeah. that identity like the monetization of identity politics is a huge issue sure because as you said publishing houses movie studios all these things that are historically and still to this day kind yeah, of yeah. run by very which well-to-do white people yeah. are now kind of waking on to this idea that like BME things are a thing and yeah, you can yeah. make money from it. So I, you know, and with Get, Get Out was really interesting because it's this whole film about like what's essentially liberal racism, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the thing. They weren't, you know, the white family in that film aren't overtly racist. No, they kind of like try and take his brain or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 Spoiler it's, alert! Warning. Oh shit! I forgot. I forgot. I forgot that we actually have listeners on the show. But the whole thing is like round out liberal racism and but yeah. no one really explored that because it was either like you either have the white people who are like overtly really yeah, yeah. racist. Overtly really yeah, yeah. Racist. It was, you know, yeah. It was either yeah. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or Mississippi Burning. Like, and this somehow <laughs> was like, is somehow between the two of them. You kind of feel that like the monetization of BME creative output mm. by these institutions that are pretty much led by like a certain class of white people do you kind of feel that that's dangerous because i i feel it kind of goes back to our crowdfunding question right about like why do these things have to be crowdfunded and maybe it is i I don't know enough about the origin story either but like maybe it is the case that like no one would crowdfund it but perhaps the alternative is that like crowdfunding actually makes it safer because it means that that creative output isn't in the hands of like an executive who understands nothing about well, the space. Like, I, li- I listened to a couple of interviews with Jordan Peele about Get Out, and it does sound like he was given latitude to do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And so, I for me, I think that the you can you can build empathy by these kind of fictional stories there is a moment in Get Out which I won't give away because I respect fucking spoilers <laughs> but there is a moment in Get Out that is like and first of all it's just a really brilliantly entertaining horror film and it, yeah. it, it does a lot of really great stuff that you want a horror film to do but there is a moment in Get Out which I think is one of the most powerful moments I've ever experienced in a film where a group of a mixed audience, and I saw it in an absolutely completely sold out cinema, where a mixed audience react in horror to the arrival of police. And it is absolutely extraordinary because what he's managed to do is get a whole group of people, uh, you know, m- many of whom in that cinema don't come from a, you know, Afro Caribbean background, and suddenly put them in the position of an innocent mm. p- black per- black guy 
and the terror of seeing the police. He's, and there is an audible gasp in the cinema, and it is absolutely extraordinary. He's put he's put that audience in the brain. It's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whoa, crazy. It's extraordinary because suddenly you go, oh, yeah, because that is that is those people's real experience. But yeah. here's here's a hot take: Is Get Out <laughs> not a parable that's basically warning BME people from having a white girlfriend? <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. Well, as someone who has a white girlfriend, I went to see that movie with you and said white girlfriend. <laughs> we're, we're obligated at this point to congratulate you. <laughs> I was, I was, as I was leaving the cinema, she didn't think this was that funny, but I was walking away. Stay away from me! Stay away from me! Where are the pictures of the others? <laughs> she did not find that as funny as I did. Uh, on that note, um, we'll leave you to get back to your white girlfriend. Uh, with your, with your... Just, just don't go meet her parents. Yeah, just, yeah, just don't go and see her parents. Exactly. Uh, like, make sure that you. Nish, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, no worries, thank you so much. That is uh, that is it for the uh, season two opener of No Country for Brown Men. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm on rbanerjee23. And I'm at, at hkesvani. You can also follow our Twitter account. It's at nc4, the numeral brown men. Um, if you'd like to follow Nikesh and, you know, give him even more followers, he's on... Wait, did you just call me Nikesh? Did you just call him Nikesh? Holy shit. Oh, if you'd like... Wow, racist. <laughs> that's, that's fucking racist, racist. Oh, Get out. That is the problem with plugging Nikesh <laughs> on this show. If you'd like to follow Nish and give him even more followers, he's on. At Mr. Nish Kumar. <laughs> Hashtag Nish. Hashtag Nish.